Good day, listeners. This is Michael Martins with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from sunny and hot West Kelowna, BC. Uh, today, it is my great, great pleasure to introduce listeners to Dr. Alexandra Morton, a legendary figure in the fight to save British Columbia's wild salmon and whale populations and the majestic places which they inhabit. Since the early 1980s, Dr. Morton, as a marine biologist, has pioneered scientific research on whales and wild salmon in the Broughton Archipelago. Dr. Morton's groundbreaking research highlights the risks of salmon farms posed to wild salmon populations. She has discovered and identified epidemic outbreaks of parasitic and viral infections in wild salmon and documented how salmon farms drove resident whales out of the Broughton Archipelago. Alex, thank you so much for your dedication and passion surrounding this subject and for joining us on the show today. Let's jump into the subject matter. So first off, can you provide me with a brief history of yourself and how you got involved with this uh, this cause and 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 uh, your arrival here in British Columbia. Yes, so I, as a child, I was very interested in what animals are saying and how they communicate and what goes on with all these sounds they produce. And so I made a decision to study communication in animals. I wanted to do this in a large-brained animal, and I picked the dolphin or killer whale. I spent a few years studying them in captivity, but it was just a series of tragedies there, and I realized that you couldn't really capture the full behavior or essence of these animals or what they were doing in a tank, which of course is obvious, but it took me a little while to figure that out. And so I wanted to find the whales, the family of the whales that were in the tank in Los Angeles where I was studying them. And they turned out to be from the A5 pod, which comes to Johnson Straits uh, off uh, northeastern Vancouver Island every summer. So I got in a pickup truck with an inflatable boat and came up here and, you know, took one sniff. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this this is my habitat. I loved everything about it. And um, in a few years found the perfect place to study uh, whales year-round which was my goal to just live in their environment and uh, that was the Broughton Archipelago uh, a tiny archipelago off of uh, sort of across from Port Hardy off the northeastern side of uh, Vancouver Island it had protecting waters it had a little community uh, all in float houses the mail came by seaplane and um, for the first few years it was just incredible it was just like one discovery after the next nobody had followed whales in the winter um i had a hydrophone i could hear the whales 24 hours a day in my house and as soon as i heard or saw them i jumped in my speedboat and i followed them and i was absolutely determined not to become an environmentalist i had read every book written by people who went into the wilderness to study an animal and invariably, the first one third of the book was just this fabulous adventure and discovery. The second part was always, oh no, <laughs> this is all coming to an end and part three was trying to fix it. And I wasn't gonna do that. But uh, when the first salmon farm arrived, I thought, wow, hey, great idea. This will uh, help keep our little one room school open and um, how could it, how could it be, you know, have a bunch of salmon in a net? And uh, I thought it was a great idea. In fact, I was interested in running one. Yeah. And, and what, what year is and, this, uh, uh, Alex? How, what, uh, what year are we talking about? That was uh, 1987, 88, 89. 
Um, but then it was an old time commercial fisherman who had lived there his entire life. His name's Billy Proctor. And he came to me and he's like, you know, they're putting these things in all the wrong places. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he told me, and he said, would you, would you please write to DFO and tell them? And so I wrote my first letter to DFO and I just laid out all the issues that he brought to me, that these were in the salmon rearing areas, um, that they were, you know, the kids on the farms were shooting things. And so there was gunfire. He was very worried about that. Um, and DFO wrote back and they said, dear Ms. Morton, you have no evidence. I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just, you know, try again. And this went on for 10 years and I began to see it myself. The whales left when they put acoustic harassment devices down. We got toxic algae blooms, heterosigma, which had never occurred in that area. Uh, I was a volunteer at the local coho hatchery and we started to catch Atlantic salmon, which was what these farms were stocked with. We started to catch Atlantic salmon in the rivers. Uh, and then the commercial fishermen were catching Atlantic salmon and I would go boat to boat and pick these fish up. I mean, some guys were getting 200 Atlantics in Tribune Channel in the year 2000 in their gill nets. And I discovered they were eating wild food, which everybody said was impossible. And then it was a sport fisherman who brought me um, two tiny little salmon, a pink and a chum. And this guy had built his own lodge. He had gone out and found the logs and salvaged them and taken them to a mill and built, literally built his own floating lodge. It was beautiful, all beautiful cedar woods. And this guy was just like an incredible sport fisherman. And uh, he was so angry. He came striding up my dock and he had these little fish in a, in a, a yogurt container and he just thrust them towards me. He goes, are these sea lice on these fish? Because if they are, we got to do something about this because I have guests here from Scotland. And the reason they're fishing with me is because they say salmon farms wiped out the wild salmon and sea trout of Scotland with sea lice. And that began 20 years of intensive sea lice research, which I'm still involved in. So that's how it got started. And, you know, you can't go into the wilderness right now and study anything without ending up trying to run interference and, and trying to keep the place alive. And that's the position I found myself in. And, and by saying that, um, you're talking about the actual uh, maintenance of what we have left uh, in terms of the integrity of those ecosystems? Yes. So, you know, in my circumstance, I honestly did not really notice salmon other than catching the odd one. And, and I knew the whales were following them. And I, I would talk to fishermen about salmon because the whales couldn't tell me things, but you know, it was amazing. Like in Kinkam Inlet, the male killer whales would go along with just six inches of their fin above the water, like little sharks. That was the only place they did that, was in the spring, in, in the inlets. So I went to the fishermen, I was like, what are they doing? And they're like, oh, that's easy. The big spring salmon are just below the meltwater, which is about six feet down, and that would put the whale's face right there. And, and so I talked to fishermen a lot about salmon. Um, but I've come to realize that there's very few species on earth that are quite as generous as salmon, who are so successful that they can feed so many species. They feed a hundred species. They built civilizations on this coast. 
They built the soil. They feed the trees that make the oxygen we breathe. They do all of that and they still have enough to re reproduce and, and carry on their own populations. They are a remarkable creature. And you know, in the early years of my sea life research, I saw the juvenile migrations, which nobody really looks at, nobody really sees it, but I began to track it. And it was just a river of tiny little fish, just a couple of centimeters long, basically the pink and the chum. And they would come out in late March, April, and then in the middle of May, out would come the young coho and chinook, and they'd sit under these schools of pink salmon, so fat with little pinks that they'd be running around with them T-boned in their mouth because they couldn't swallow another one. <laughs> and so I could see, you know, I would, I'd find these schools of fish by looking for the kingfishers in the trees because they'd be sitting there looking straight down and I'd, oh, that's where they are. And the mergansers were there and everything set their clocks to salmon, whether it was the juveniles or the adults, everywhere they went, life turned on. And so I began to just marvel at them. And once I started running interference for them and trying to help them make it to the ocean, because that's the problem, these farms are killing them before they get to the ocean. Once I started that fight, I just could not let them down. I could not walk away. And uh, I've basically spent my whole adult life on this now. And I'm losing. I mean, runs are less than when I got here, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can only imagine the frustration. And, you know, it sounds like you've become one with the ecosystem and, and are, are interacting in a, in a cohesive manner there. Um, you, you mentioned the decline in the abundance. What have you seen in terms of uh, the abundance in the Broughton area from the time that you arrived uh, up until today? What, do, do we have some figures on that? We have figures, uh, definitely, you know, the runs of chum salmon, say, into the Viner River were like 50,000, and now they're into a couple hundred. But huh. it might be easier to explain it in, in what happened. So when those chum salmon would come in, the same fleet from Alert Bay would be there, and so would the entire G-Clan Northern resident orca. They were both there fishing them, and there was still 50,000 fish that went into that river. Similarly, there was a gillnet fishery in Tribune Channel that would catch up to a million pink salmon. And the two big pink salmon rivers in that area, the Kakweekan and the Glendale, still had a million pinks each. And the Otta also had 20, 30, 40,000. Last year was one-tenth of 1%. 1 the whales don't bother to come in. There's no commercial fisheries. The sport fishing lodges are roasting pigs instead of salmon. It's, it's the community died, we went away, <laughs> the government burnt down our school. Um, that now I live in the fishing village of Slintula. Uh, this was one of the wealthiest communities per capita in all of Canada, and that is not the case anymore. Uh, and uh, so I've seen it, I've lived it, and it's wrong. Uh, it's deeply wrong. And if we're going to survive on this planet, we need to do better than this. We need to notice these, these animals that are like power lines. The, the salmon is like a power line. They go and they collect 
essentially the energy of the sun hitting the open Pacific Ocean. Because when the sun hits the ocean, it creates plankton, little fish eat the plankton, salmon eat the little fish, and then they package that into something we all like to eat, and they come into the coast on a schedule, and they defy gravity and go up in the rivers, and their nutrients are poured all over the forest. The tree growth rings are bigger, the bigger the salmon run, which means they're drawing down more carbon out of our atmosphere, producing more oxygen, and all of this is free. All we need to do is get out of the way. And, um, you know, the city of Vancouver had the biggest run of salmon in the world running right between its city streets. Okay, so that means the fish can live with us if we can just respect some of the basic needs that they have. And I believe that the biggest impact on this coast for salmon has been these farms. They have survived logging, fishing, and so many other miscalculations, <laughs> but they're not surviving these farms. Interesting. So if we are down to one-tenth of one percent, uh, what does that mean for the other species, uh, such as bears and, and the other terrestrial animals that are requiring that nutrient shift from the sea into the forest? Well, so like I said, the orca aren't coming in to feed on them anymore. Uh, but perhaps the most graphic example was what happened to the grizzly bears last year as a result of this. Uh, a photographer friend um, uh, photographed these bears. They were just emaciated. Their ribs were showing. Um, these images ended up on CNN all over the world. Unfortunately, they ascribed it to climate change which is definitely having an enormous impact and we need to deal with this. But the reason those bears were starving was because the Glendale River had no fish. And the reason the Glendale River had no fish is their fish have been eaten by sea lice every single year for 20 years as they're trying to get out to sea. And I know this because I do an intensive study every year for the last 20 years, once a week, setting a beach chain with my speedboat, looking at 100 fish at each site, and counting the number of sea lice on them. These bears, the ones that were that weak didn't make it, but the other bears just got up and left. And now there's bears in communities, there's grizzly bears in communities throughout East Vancouver Island where they've never been before, like Sayward and Campbell River and Port McNeil, um, which has increased human encounters with the bears. So, you know, it's very, um, it's not abstract. It's very easy to see these things happen. And I would argue it's very easy to fix them. It's really easy to fix them. But it takes, takes will, you know? We, have to, we just have to do what the fish need. We cannot, you know, play around with politically correct solutions. Oh, let's plant a few trees here. Let's blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. You gotta figure out what's killing the fish and go straight for that and fix that. And then you can do all the small things after, which are also important. But if you don't fix the main thing, like in the Broughton, they've closed the commercial fisheries, the sport fisheries gone, the whales aren't coming, we have logged watersheds, we have unlogged watersheds, and the salmon are disappearing in all of them. And every year, the juvenile salmon are being eaten to death by sea lice. So, I mean, this is the thing that's so frustrating to me. Oh my God, it's so obvious. <laughs> and so do we have examples where uh, watersheds or systems 
have had the farms removed and then we see an increase in the salmon stocks as essentially a rebound in the populations? Do we, do we have evidence that we can point to situations like that? We do. So in the beginning of this effort with the sea lice, uh, I made the prediction that the 2001 pink salmon were not going to return, that they were going to be, they were going to collapse by 98%. And everybody said, oh, Alex, you're a whale researcher. You should not be messing around with salmon predictions. Well, then 99% of those fish did not come back. The rest of the coast was good, but those fish in the Broughton, those seven rivers there, experienced a profound collapse. And this triggered a whole bunch of re reactions. And the outcome was that the province of British Columbia said that the salmon farms on the migration route of the pink salmon in the Broughton Archipelago had to be closed in the spring of 2003. And so they did. And so I studied those fish going to sea the sea lice were way down. There were still farms around, but the main migration route was clear. And then DFO, Dr. Richard Beamish, wrote a paper about this. And that generation of pink salmon survived better than any pink salmon generation ever studied. In fact, he said these numbers are so high that he thought there must be some calculation error. However, this was his research. Now, through a set of extraordinary situations and, and actions, the fish farms are leaving the Broughton Archipelago. We won there, thanks to the indigenous governance, the First Nations. And so this spring was the first time I got to look at those fish again with fewer farms. There's about 4 million less Atlantic salmon on their migration route. And they were almost perfect. Oh. I mean, to look at them. So what I do is I, I do a beach chain and then I take a couple five gallon buckets and I just scoop into the fish school, just randomly collecting fish. I put them in my speedboat and I pick up every single one of them in a small sandwich Ziploc baggie. And I lay it down on a piece of graph paper and I can get its measurement. And then I look at it through a hand lens, both sides, and then I release it. So if the fish is alive. Every year that the farms are there, I see these fish, there's sea lice on their eyeballs, eating holes into them. When the sea lice are, are crawling on them, the fish are shivering. I've done, <laughs> I, I can't stand it. I've taken tweezers and pulled the lice off of them. And these little fish, the first time the tweezer hits them, they freak out. But the soon as I get one louse off, they sit completely still until I get every single louse off of them. This year, when I looked at the fish, I tell you, it, my heart was just like ringing like a bell. There they were. They are so beautiful. They are, you know, when you're looking at them through a hand lens, their little scales are just sparkling in blues and silvers, and their eyes were just jet black. When, when they get stressed with the farms, their eyes get all cloudy. They didn't have any holes in them. Their bellies were rounded instead of sucked up against their ribs. It was so beautiful to see them. You know, I barely, I just looked at them and let them go. I barely even took a picture because I was just like, I don't even want to touch you. Um, and uh, we'll see, they'll be back next fall. And we're going to see what happens to fish finally as the First Nations move these farms out of the Broughton. 
Well, that's that's a vindication and a victory for your efforts. I mean, that's uh, if, if we can continue along that pathway, that's uh, tremendous. Well, <laughs> yes, I agree. But the three companies, there's only three companies that are the fish farm industry on this coast. They're all Norwegian based. And this is scaring them. So the, the way we got rid of these farms is a group of us spent 280 days standing on their farms in the middle of the winter in 2017 and 18. And this, the First Nation leadership knew that the farms were a problem, but honestly, they're dealing with so much uh, that it just didn't get to the top of the pile. You know, they're, they're, they're dealing with poor drinking water, housing issues, drug abuse, you know, just they're overwhelmed. But the majority of people standing on the farm were young indigenous women, basically girls. And I think that the chiefs were worried that they were gonna get hurt. And um, the companies already had an injunction against me. So I spent most of my time tied to the farm in my speedboat to watch over them. And uh, so, yeah, forget where this was going. Um, oh, yeah, so because of the effort of these people standing on the farms, the leadership got into negotiations with the government and the government worked out a plan with them where they could take out a few farms every year and that's what's happening. But this is an economic loss for these companies because they're based on share price. They're not even based on the price of salmon, they're based on share price. So they always need more farms. They need more farms every single year. And to have less farms rang a whole bunch of alarm bells. And so now it's gonna be harder to get them out of the other areas. Um, so for example, off of Campbell River, one third of all of British Columbia salmon go through there. All the fish from the Fraser River, and then there's uh, mainland inlets like Butte, and then there's the um, East Vancouver Island rivers like the uh, Cowichan and the Campbell and the yeah, Quinsum and a bunch of other ones. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're preying on the First Nations. In fact, one company this year is giving every First Nations in a Campbell River band 25 pounds of sockeye salmon. As a, so this as is a, how they operate. Essentially as a bribe to, to win some hearts and minds to allow them to continue their deplorable yes. operations. Oh, we yeah. care, we care. So we're gonna give you these fish. Oh boy. These nations used to be able to catch all the fish they needed. And now, you know, they also fund churches, they fund children's sport teams, they fund the enhancement hatcheries. They're insidious, they, they know what they're doing. So all I can do as a biologist is keep doing the research and making it very clear that their fish are not gonna survive this. They have, no, no fish have survived salmon farms anywhere in the world, Norway, Scotland, Ireland, Eastern Canada, Faroe Islands, Iceland. It just doesn't work because salmon farms are feedlots. And inside these feedlots, we know that pathogens breed because all the natural laws have been broken. There are no predators, first of all, to take out the sick fish. So a sick fish just gets sicker and sicker <laughs> until it just wastes away. And all that time, it's shedding pathogens into the water. Second of all, these are Atlantic salmon from the Atlantic. 
So they brought all kinds of things with them. And third, they're so tightly together that the pathogens, whether it's sea lice or viruses or bacteria, just jump from fish to fish and they expand. So, so each farm is just wafting out clouds of sea lice larvae, billions, literally, scientists have testified to this, billions of viral particles per hour, and then there's the bacteria. These viruses mutate in farms to become more lethal. This is the dangerous thing about feedlots because all these laws are changed. The virus, viruses in the wild don't wanna kill their host. They wanna run with the host. They, this is their ride. They wanna be able to you know, spread for the whole lifespan of the fish. But in a farm, oh, everybody's gonna die in 18 months anyway, so the strategy changes. And the better idea is to uh, replicate as fast as you can, and that's virulence, and that's lethalness. And uh, the bacteria is the same. They're becoming drug resistant, and the sea lice are becoming drug resistant. It's just a disgusting mess and does not belong in these beautiful productive waters. No, certainly not. And, and you raise the issue of the viruses and um... I guess that now when you mention these uh, migratory routes of the salmon through the Georgia Strait, uh, clearly if there's billions of these virus particles coming out, those are potentially affecting every single fish that migrates through that route. Um, and I was, I was reading there that the uh, uh, Furinicolosis uh, seems to have potentially wiped out uh, the Kinkum Inlet Spring Chinook Run. I mean, that's, um, can you comment on that? I mean, that sounds like something which needs intervention immediately. Well, yes, but that was a while ago. Uh, so um, in the Broughton, when I first arrived, you could catch a spring salmon any month of the year. We had what were called winter springs. These were overwintering Chinook and uh, we all fished them. They're delicious. They're very, you know, they're absolutely incredibly delicious because they're not spawning. So they're not growing eggs and sperm. They're just growing fish. And then every spring, an enormous amount of salmon came in following the uh, herring and the oolicans. And of course the killer whales came with them, which is how I noticed all of this. Um, and of course there were guys that would show up to fish those fish. There was the commercial fisheries and there were sport fisheries. And then later in the summer, the spawning salmon would come in. So the Brown Archipelago was just this <laughs> revolving door of, of runs of, of Chinook spring salmon as well as the other species, but, but the Chinook were so uh, obvious because everybody loved them and, and was, was really paying attention to them. Then the salmon farms came in and in 1991 and then again in 1993, they had massive outbreaks of this bacterial disease called furunculosis. And there was a lot of debate about where it came from, whether it actually came from Scotland. We do have furunculosis here, but um, the reason we noticed is because like I said I was a hatchery volunteer and we ran our hatchery with three percent broodstock mortality for 10 years and then this this uh, bacteria showed up and suddenly 28 percent of the broodstock were dying with these enormous red rimmed sores all over their bodies. DFO's like oh here inject them with this oxy oxytetracycline the fish healed up and they were fine but nobody looked at the fish in the river. 
nobody <laughs> looked at the wild fish. There was nobody to give them injections, which is really a horrifying thought that, that they would need that to survive. And then two years later, they came in again with the, with the bacteria, and now it was, was resistant to all of the three antibiotics that were approved for use in the salmon farming industry. And in this time period, we lost the overwintering Chinook. I mean, people like Billy Proctor, who I'm talking about, these guys lived and breathed fish. They certainly could catch them if they were there. They couldn't catch them. This, the orcas stopped coming. And all of the fishing lodges closed. We had fishing lodges in, uh, you know, all over through Kinkham Inlet and down in the lower waters and all but one of them just towed out of the area because they were all on floats. So uh, pretty dramatic. And now there's this uh, problem with another pathogen. It's Piscine orthoreovirus. It's from Norway. Uh, it's a blood virus. It gets into, when it, in, it, in Atlantic salmon, it does certain things, slows them down. But what the research shows is when it gets into these Chinook, it actually causes their red blood cells to explode en masse, causing liver failure. The fish turn yellow. And really, if anybody listening to this sees yellow salmon this summer in the rivers, if you could please contact me, that would be really great. I've sent samples of this to Norway and the Norwegian scientists, they're like, oh yeah, that's our virus. And so- But DFO and- Sorry, let me just <laughs> jump in there for a second. So yeah. with, with this orthoreovirus, can the genomic sequence of that be attributed to the Norwegian hatcheries of this, uh, uh, the hatchery stock that has been brought here? Yes. Maybe. And so, I mean, isn't, yes. there, isn't there a legal uh, challenge there uh, for responsibility? Yes, yes I have, I've mounted two uh, lawsuits against the Minister of Fisheries and CIRMAC and Maui, which was Marine Harvest. I won both of them. And DFO is still allowing the industry to put fish that are infected in their hatcheries into these marine pens which is completely asinine and should be illegal. what DFO says is, I know, but they have scientists who say, oh, this is a local virus. It's been here all along. It's no problem. But they have not produced the genetic sequence of the quote unquote local virus. Those of us who have gotten it sequenced and you, you, you put it into a genetic tree and it shows how it's related to the other Piscine orthoreoviruses that other scientists in other countries have put into this one database called GenBank. And when you put it in there, it's like, oop, oop, it goes and it sits right there with the other Norwegian viruses. It's like, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm at the Mad Hatter's tea party. You, you, you talk to DFO, you do the evidence, you publish the papers, you do all the legwork, and then they just say, no, no, we don't, we don't think it is from Norway. Oh my God. Yeah. I, you know, Based on what evidence other than just your coin flipping or, or your simple obfuscation of the facts. And, and, and is some of that potentially- they have I, no evidence. Yeah, I, I know under, under um, the Harper regime, there was a kind of concerted effort to get rid of some baseline data from the DFO. I recall that that was a fairly extensive process. Yeah. 
has what is the flavor of DFO under the new regime? Have we kind of moved into a bit more of a um, scientific-based uh, DFO, or are we still a politically-based DFO? Well, DFO is a complex animal. If you talk to people who actually get wet, who actually go into the field, they have the same concerns I do, the same concerns First Nations do, and the environmental groups. But, and then if you talk to DFO po political, like the, um, well, the Minister of Fisheries, maybe, and, and his, his, his henchmen, you'll, they'll, they'll, they'll bob their heads and, and wring their hands and agree with you and say, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. But there is the senior bureaucratic level, which is absolutely deadly because they never move. They're the same people that were there during the Harper era, and they do not allow information to move. One of the things I started doing, in addition to the field work and the activism, is uh, in Canada, you can uh, use the Freedom of Information Act to get the emails of government employees. And so you submit a request, for example, and you say, you know, between May 15th, 2020 and uh, June 17th, 2020, I'd like all the correspondence between these three people on this subject. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, so I know what they're saying and I know what they're thinking and I know what they're hiding. Um, I feel like I've been in their sock drawer um, and it's not good. It's, they say one thing publicly and another thing privately or the field staff are saying, please give us some laws that we can actually use to control this thing because the sea lice on these farms are killing wild salmon. These are people in DFO, but their words are never getting to the minister. So uh, we had a good minister with Jonathan Wilkinson. He was interesting. He's the first one who's ever spoken to me. And um, he would do things like go to uh, universities and just show up in labs and talk to the people, the scientists there and say, what, what concerns you, you know, with the fish? What are, you, what are you working on? This is what they should do, like find out what is going on. And, uh, but then as soon as he got replaced, we got a minister again from the East Coast and she simply doesn't even answer letters. I am done speaking to DFO, and, and the reason is uh, one of the things that we were supposed to deal with last fall was the sea lice. And um, the lower staff, the people in, the, in the, the field staff and the veterinarians were saying these sea lice need to be controlled, they're, they're, they're drug resistant, the companies aren't listening to us, they're not getting their lice down to the safe level, which is three lice per farm salmon. And uh, and so a big deal was made about changing those licenses. DFO consulted with First Nations. First Nations asked me to join them in these uh, consultation. I was invited to be on a, a fish health committee uh, appointed by the minister and we dealt with this issue and everybody said, we need stronger rules. I mean, really, it's simple. Just put a fine that is so big that it makes more fiscal sense to the company to deal with it than to just let it go. Well, on March 1st, DFO rolled out their brand new conditions of license and they said, 
oh yes, you're supposed to have three lice per fish during the juvenile salmon out migration in the spring, but <laughs> we're gonna give you six weeks during those three months and you can have any level of lice you want. Oh my God. So what happened was 38% of the farms went over the limit in Nooka Sound. They were like five times the limit. The, the, the juvenile fish were just eaten to death. The, everywhere as I looked, Discovery Islands, Johnson Strait, Queen Charlotte Strait, Clockwood Sound, Nooka Sound, the fish were wrecked. The only place they looked good was out in the Broughton where the farms are disappearing. And I thought, Okay, okay, okay. DFO is managing farm salmon, not wild salmon. So I'm gonna just stop talking to them because I'm not interested in managing farm salmon. I'm interested in, in trying to preserve wild salmon. And to, to that end, I'm only speaking with First Nation governments now. And I, I mean, not all of them are proactive about this, but more and more of them are because they, they truly, embody the the value of these fish and like i said they're so overwhelmed it's hard for them to deal with it but i'm you know offering my assistance offering my data offering my expertise i've been an expert witness for them I've, i send them briefings about what is going on um because i i saw what happened in the broughton i did that lesson was not lost on me they have the power and for everybody who wants wild salmon, you know, I would suggest that you reach out to the First Nations and ask if they need your help. Yeah, certainly it's not my opinion whatsoever, but I, I feel that from DFO and certainly the Harper regime uh, seem to see salmon, wild salmon, as an inconvenience towards pushing their economic agendas forward, which would include you know, increased access for logging uh, of uh, watersheds, as well as, uh, you know, oil and gas pipeline initiatives. If, if there's no resource value at stake, then there's, there's no environmental concern. Um, is, is that something that you, is that the flavor of management that you're seeing at DFO? Yes, I agree with you. I, I didn't agree, but, you know, initially I thought, I really just thought these people were stupid. <laughs> I know that's naive, but I just thought they just don't know what is going on. But then as I began to meet them, I was like, oh, clearly these are highly intelligent people. They're just doing something else. And I think, honestly, at some level in DFO, the failure is that there are still wild fish and those pesky fishermen they have to deal with um, because the answer is so bloody simple put the farms on land have your economic development with aquaculture if that's what you want to do and let's use the extraordinary science that is now exists to bring back these wild fish it's just then you benefit everybody, you get your whales, you get economic diversity, you're feeding the trees that are pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere, so you're fighting climate change. You are honestly committing reconciliation, true reconciliation. British Columbians love wild salmon, so you're serving the public. 
it's just, it's just like, why, why always take the low road? Why always slink around, you know, like, oh yes, we're doing everything we can. Meanwhile, really? Last year was the lowest return of Fraser River sockeye in the history of this country. You know, they're getting eaten by sea lice on their way out to sea, and then they're shooting them out of a cannon to get them up the upper Fraser. Give me a break. You can see it's not working. And so one of the problems is there's nobody in DFO at a senior management level whose whole position is the health of wild salmon. I've gone looking. Because when I was on this fish health committee, I, you know, there was all kinds of people there for the salmon farming industry. There was veterinarians and then there was bureaucrats. There's a, there a huge bureaucracy for running the salmon farms in DFO. I mean, that, that the employment in that section in itself has become this machine that doesn't want to die either. And, uh, but there was, <laughs> there was nobody there for the wild salmon. So I kept bringing this up. And uh, when the minister was asked, he was like, oh, well, we have Alex Morton there. Uh-huh, yeah, I don't work for DFO. I don't even have a consistent salary. I don't have a team. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one you have there to, so, okay, if that's the case, then listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be nice, that would be nice. Well, yeah, I eventually resigned because you know, the outcome of this workshop was so bad, or this uh, committee was so bad for wild salmon. I did not want my name attached to it. This whole thing about giving them six weeks to basically kill juvenile salmon with sea lice uh, every year. I thought, okay, well, I really know I, I, I'm not going to be a party to that. But um, yeah, so then I, I, for a while, had this idea that, well, it's it is, it's a good idea. DFO needs to form a position in senior management that is the director of wild salmon. Somebody whose whole uh, life is, is what is going on with wild salmon, who would go out into the watersheds and speak to the experts. Because I have traveled throughout the Fraser River watershed and I've ended up at kitchen tables uh, in First Nation communities and in non-First Nations communities. And I have been so impressed with the wealth of knowledge that exists on the ground. It's like my friend, Billy Proctor. I mean, he knows everything that happened to salmon over the last 80 years in that area. And so if you, if you used all this information and you empowered these different organizations who are like the First Nation fisheries teams and the universities and the stream keepers, if you empowered them to uh, be part of this team, because the interesting thing is in the cells of the salmon, there's a record of what they're experiencing. It's called genomic profiling. And so, uh, and, and it's the same for humans, it's the same for all animals, but in there, if you can read this, what you see is this series of switches that are on and off. And by reading what switches are on and what switches are off, you can and see if the fish is dealing with high water temperature or chemicals or um, uh, toxic algae blooms causing suffocation or low food. And if you read these immune systems of the fish as they migrate, you can get this whole report card 
on what we are doing to them. And then using that information, we could go to those areas and, and look at that and go, wow, okay, could we filter this pipe or could we open a dam at this time period or could we fertilize this lake or just and try one of those things. And then the next year as the fish migrate by, you can ask the fish, did we make it better for you or not? And they become, they become the guide in their own restoration. And it, there's like, there's no lying in this system. The fish are talking now. And you take this information back to the local communities where this impact is happening. And I think if you told a community on the coast that you are killing off 61% of the Chilco Sakai or the Thompson River Chinook or any specific run, because this information is that precise. If you were able to tell people that, I believe that people would step up and they'd be like, oh, well, let's change that. Let's figure that out. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it would be this, this office in DFO that really what didn't exist so much in DFO as just orchestrated that everybody was taking the samples the same way, everybody was communicating the same way, have a gathering annually to talk about what you find, bring people together. Um, this was pre-COVID, I guess we'd have to do it by Zoom now. Uh, but get this information out because one of the horrifying things is fish disease is now a state secret in this country. <laughs> you really, the labs are, you know, have their thumb screws on and <laughs> funders don't want to fund it and DFO doesn't want to hear it. But if you, the hatcheries are not allowed to test, people in hatcheries are not allowed to send fish to me or more importantly, to some of the top scientists in DFO are not allowed to access hatcheries to, to look at the disease issues there. What's with that? So if it's this so, network was formed, we would bring salmon back. Yeah, well, I for one would nominate you as the as Canada's uh, or, or Western Canada's salmon czar and put you in that position to organize that. Um, if we're looking at this from an economic standpoint, I, I've seen some reports um, which compare even the commercial fishery to the recreational sport fishery uh, and certainly the farmed uh, salmon versus the, the sport fishing side and, and the ecotourism side, which develops much more revenue. However, that revenue is spread out across a much greater number of participants. So are we, are we seeing here really what amounts to political influence from these companies that, you know, do we have a record of what their campaign contributions are to these various political parties? Um, you know, they, they must be employing lobbyists to continuously, you know, push, push these buttons and levers to keep legislation moving in their direction. So this is a, it's a very interesting question and probably the hardest one to uh, really answer. Um, Yes, there's political influence. Yes, they have lobbyists. But I don't think it's a direct line. You know, I think it's something like, and I have no evidence of this, but it's something like Canada going to Norway and saying, would you please come and dig in our tar sands? And Norway saying, okay, but throw in the BC coast. It's something, uh, it's layers because in Norway, for example, it costs a million dollars to get a, a license to farm salmon. 
In British Columbia, it costs less than renting an apartment in the town of Courtney. It's wow. a couple of grand. It's wow. nothing. They're giving it away. They're bending all the rules. You know, you talk to field staff, they say they're not allowed to fine salmon farms. What? <laughs> you're certainly allowed to find fishermen. You're allowed to find people that dump chemicals or, you know, you're not allowed to find fish farms. There's all kinds of protective layers around this. And I've seen this whole thing begin. And what in the very beginning, uh, you know, I was living in a little floating house in a float house community that was a hundred years old, surrounded by several First Nation communities. Uh, we were a pretty happy group. Salmon farms arrived and the first thing that the province of BC did was they took away our right to tie up our float houses. They began to chase us out. They photographed us from helicopters. They asked us what our neighbor's new structure was, what that new float was. I went down to Victoria and I talked to the Crown Lands bureaucrat. His, his name was Doug Barry. And I said, I, I'd like to get a, a tenure for my float house. I wanted to be legal. I wanted to put in the sewage, whatever they needed. I just wanted the legal right to tie up to this piece of coastline. And he looked at me and he said, there's been a memorandum of understanding passed we are no longer granting tenures for float houses. We're going to grant them for moorage for tourists, log storage, and aquaculture. So on one hand, the government was saying, oh, <laughs> you little community, this is going to be good for you. These salmon farms are going to be great. They're going to bring more people. This is going to be good for you. They were, they were saying that over and over. And then on the other hand, they're saying, uh-uh, you can't live there anymore. So that tells you that this was not an honest thing from the very beginning. And the, the fishermen's union, the commercial fishermen's uh, union paper, they tracked this thing in the beginning. Then they went silent, and I have no idea why. But they had a writer, uh, an editor, uh, Jeff Meggs, who's now right-hand man to uh, John Horgan, and Jeff Meggs went to the very first meeting about fish farms. It was in 1984 in a penthouse uh, in Vancouver. And he came out of that and he said, this is going to be low employment, foreign investment, high risk to wild salmon. He said, this is the end of the common property fishery. Oh my God, he nailed it. I don't know how he picked all of that up from that one meeting, but that's what he wrote. And that is what has happened. And they've gone silent. The Steelhead Society also was a huge voice in keeping Atlantic salmon out of this province because of the risk of disease. Now that they're here and the evidence is that they've brought disease, they are also silent. And, you know, I've gained a lot of notoriety. People call me a folk hero. Uh, people, you know, want to shake my hand when they meet me on the street. But honestly, guys, you think a 60-year-old woman is going to be able to handle this? It, I can't. I've done everything I can. I've marched. I've occupied. I've gone to Norway, met with the CEOs. I've been on 60 Minutes. I've written over 20 scientific papers on this. I turned my home into a research station. I've written books. Uh, you know, I've done everything. And there's more farms, and there's fewer wild salmon and the risk is bigger. 
except in the Broughton. So it, it reminds me, and I know this is a silly analogy, but it reminds me of the story, The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy gets into all these problems, but she had the ruby slippers and all she needed to do was click her heels three times and it was all over. Well, it's the same situation with this. We have the power. The problem is the industry, the salmon farming industry has the ear of our government. They're more afraid of these three Norwegians than they are of public opinion. And if people were just uh, determined to stop this, they could, and these fish would come back. Well, and I think that's a, sorry, I think that's a problem in Canada in general. The, the, the population in Canada has, has been lulled into a, uh, uh, unbelievable state of apathy where people throw up their hands and sort of shrug and say, Oh, what can we do? And they continue on with their mediocre lives and, and accept whatever garbage is thrown at them. And, uh, you know, one of my personal motivations for, for starting this podcast is to start to raise some awareness and, and build a group of people that are willing to, you know, shout from the rooftops and are not going to stand by idly and accept, uh, you know, the perpetration of these frauds and, and you know, mismanagement of, of a resource that has been here for thousands of years. Um, and if we, you know, with help to do things properly, as the removal of the farms in the Broughton shows, we can get back to, um, you know, pre-farm conditions in a fairly short period of time. These ecosystems are highly resilient. Um, we just need to help them to, to get back into that condition. I agree. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, we, we have gotten, we're getting rid of the farms out of the Broughton Archipelago. I don't know if they can come back from one tenth of one percent so this is a, a big challenge for these fish but um, like right now the fishing is not bad around Malcolm Island there's still salmon here and as long as this beautiful DNA that evolved here exists there is a chance um, well certainly they, so, they but came people back. just have to put their foot down that's right. And certainly, you know, the, the example that I always give to people is that, uh, you know, 10,500 years ago, most of uh, North America and certainly Canada was a barren wasteland of gravel and, and you know, the, the, the devastation which uh, was left after the receding glaciers. And so if these fish that obviously had some refugia, uh, probably in more southern, uh, down to California and, and southern, or southern Oregon, were able to reintroduce themselves into systems which were completely destroyed and in many cases uh, you know a, a system that had no nutrients because there was no vegetation and they were able to recolonize these systems in that fashion so i think that gives us hope that as long as you know the salmon are given some help uh, and we step out of the way of, of damaging their their uh, their ability to survive that they will survive and prosper i agree you know, the, the, the pink salmon of uh, this coast are um, going around the Arctic and they are populating Norwegian rivers right now. They're actually a big problem. So if they can go populate Norwegian rivers, they can certainly repopulate their own rivers. Interesting. Um, so is that a fact? I know I, I read an article recently that uh, I think both Japan, Russia, and China are, are doing what amounts to salmon ranching, where they're, they're raising pink salmon in, in massive numbers in hatcheries, releasing them into the ocean, 
uh, and then essentially allowing the ocean to rear them naturally. And then as they come back to their spawning locations, they're capturing them. Is, it, does that have an effect on, on the ocean survival for our fish and just in terms of the competition for a finite uh, resource? Yes, there, there are people working on that who um, have looked at the numbers and are very convinced that that is having a, a huge impact uh, as well. Um, this is the problem with us humans is we just always think more is better. Um, you know, for example, DFO has tried to make pink salmon runs big every other year, but naturally they're big every other year. Yes. And when I started to really examine pink salmon, I noticed that the juveniles were eating um, barnacle larvae. And so it would make sense that one year they ate the larvae, the next year the larvae all got to settle and make barnacles. And then the year after the juveniles would come by and there'd be tons of barnacle larvae. These natural systems are so powerful and resilient that if we could just look at how they really work, just like looking at your car engine, you know, and adding oil and, you know, making sure, changing the belts, making sure that you work with that engine rather than just jamming things into it and see if it'll still go. Um, you know, where I live, I see the, the Vancouver Island mountains and you see the, the air come in from the west coast and when it hits those mountains, it forms clouds, which forms rain and it's feeding the Nimkish Valley and the Sitka and the Adams River. Um, these natural systems are so huge and powerful and they make fish, which makes so much other life that we just need to learn how to dovetail into these systems. And we have the power to do that. Uh, science, I know a lot of people don't trust science and I can see why, um, but the people who are out there really measuring things uh, can see how it fits together. And a lot of the First Nation history of these places is remarkably aligned with the science that people are doing. And uh, we can totally live with these. We can totally live with these fish. We can bring them back. This is what makes me so sad. When you said earlier that it was frustrating, it's really not the right word. It's, it's much deeper than that. I mean, I am watching extinction in play. And I watch the eagles around my place desperate for food um the orcas are getting what they call peanut heads where the head is a bigger bump than the rest of the body there's a dip by the blowhole and that's a sign that they're starving i see that i see the starving bears i'm in a community that can barely afford to survive anymore and uh and the only boats running around out there are the farm boats and those guys are making low wages. I talk to fish farmers all the time. I do not attack the fish farmers out there. You know, I, we're all humans in this and, and most of them hate their job. It's low paying, they feel abused. Um, it, it's not anything that, they, except for the managers, it's not, it's not anything that's really sustaining them. And, are, uh, and that's that's a big problem. That that has been a big problem in in British Columbia's resource extraction time immemorial. That the we almost have slave labor. I mean, you've got very marginally paid employees that are, like yeah. you say, be, being taken advantage of. 
and the the profits from these corporations largely are leaving the province and and we're left yeah. with the the mess and and the uh, you know the the results the ramifications of that and you know certainly our our forestry industry has been been that i spent quite a bit of my uh, forestry career in the queen charlotte's and seeing what companies like uh, uh, Fletcher Challenge and Crown Zellerback did to that place, which was out of sight and out of mind. I mean, they literally raped, they raped and pillaged on a, on a scale which, unless people have seen that, uh, particularly from the air, is almost unimaginable. Um, and what has been left in terms of, you know, from the billions of dollars of lumber that's been removed from that island since <clears throat> the beginning of the First World War, there's nothing left. I mean, there, there's no infrastructure there to speak of. Um, you know, the, the, the pennies which were left behind uh, are, are immeasurable compared to what the profits were that were taken away. And, you know, we're seeing the same thing now with uh, the, the pipelines and, and the extraction. And of course, you know, the, the fish farms are, are no different, unfortunately. I know when they say it's good, it's for the economy, I'm thinking, well, who, whose economy? because it's not benefiting the communities here, whether it's logging or fish farming or mining, it's not benefiting the local communities. We have been cut out of the deal and, uh, and our attachment to the environment that we live in is broken. You know, the fact they, tried, they, they did get rid of us, they destroyed my community of Echo Bay. It's, it's basically gone. I think there's seven people left. Um, yeah, so so everybody, just <laughs> you've got politicians who are elected and all they want to do is get elected again. There's good ones out there. There's really good politicians there. Um I'm I'm you know I applaud what Lana Popham, our Minister of Agriculture, did in regards to the salmon farms, but she can't do anything unless the population is behind her, unless we're willing to help her stand up to these companies. We have a minister of fisheries right now who is a complete fail. She does not answer letters. She's on the East Coast. We need a West Coast minister. We need a minister of fisheries who has the time to pay attention to the extinction curve of the Pacific salmon of British Columbia. Um, does, does British maybe Columbia, we need two ministers. Yeah, does, does British Columbia, do, do we need leadership in place here that will take a dramatic step, which would be to tell DFO that your jurisdiction no longer applies to our coastal watersheds because you're doing such a miserable job of managing this resource and we're creating a new fisheries department that we're going to be looking after this on our own and you know sorry you guys are no longer I mean is that, is that something that would uh, be a solution or is that something that uh, could work if we can generate the legal framework to allow that to happen yeah, I mean, it, it, eventually that is what needs to happen. The trouble is we have fish hanging by a thread and every single generation is make or break for them. Like we just lost most of the out-migration this year due to the, the sea lice outbreaks. Um, and so, I mean, I'm hoping that the Fraser, the Fraser River Nations did look at my research this year on sea lice and they put out a, a press release which is demanding the government to... Uh, followed the Cohen Commission recommendation number 19, which is to get the farms out of the Discovery Islands. If everybody in British Columbia backed that, I believe that would happen. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, 
we're so down to the wire and what you what you recommend is right but it requires so much money and you know i'm barely surviving and i'm well known in this field um i know it's true of, of all biologists that are are working on this if they don't work for industry so i think we have to pick up the broken system we've got and just try to give these fish a break right now and honestly if you just get these farms off their migration routes asap that is going to give them the chance for survival and uh when justin when when um uh, Justin Trudeau was uh, working to get reelected. He came out with a promise that by 2025, the fish farms would be out of our waters. They'd be in closed containment. Well, then Minister Bernadette Jordan from the East Coast said, oh, oh yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't get them out. It was have a plan to get them out. Okay, well, you guys are flip-flopping around on this. Yeah, we, we all know that whatever comes out of Mr. Dressup's mouth isn't worth the air that uh, it's spoken with. It's, it's all lies and, and obfuscation. And but he knows. Because he said it, because this is his promise, he knows this is what British Columbians want. He knows that this is the right thing to do. And so if British Columbians just, you know, wander off and don't make him stick to that, then he's not going to because the fish farmers are in his face every day. They got the lobbyists. Whatever strings this thing is attached to, they are in play. And um, so really, you just, everybody needs to figure out for themselves what they need to do. There is no magic wand, but it is pressure. You need to write to your local MP, your MLA, Justin Trudeau, our uh, fisheries minister missing in action. I mean, I really think it would be a big step to get a West Coast fisherman or a fisheries minister right now. Right. And, and if we had to choose amongst the members of parliament, you know, we need to figure out, uh, Joyce Murray would be an excellent one, for example. She knows, she's looked at this, but maybe there's other MPs because they're going extinct on our watch and our children and our children's children are not going to believe that we let sea lice eat them. Sea lice are really the only ones eating wild salmon on this coast. They're sucking up the quota of all of the fishermen. I, I, I do a, a radio show with a New York chef and he's like, there's no, you can't buy wild salmon from British Columbia anymore. It's over. They go to Alaska. It's over, and I cannot believe that the commercial fishermen have not, you know, mounted a huge protest against this. But they just want to shoot seals and get rid of the First Nation fishery. So there's so much infighting. Yes, maybe seals are a problem. Yes, maybe some fisheries are a problem. But if the salmon are not getting to sea alive, then nothing else we do is going to work. And I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the glaciers because in my view, nothing has happened to these fish as bad as the ice age, the glaciers. They are literally running through these clouds of sea lice. Every time they open their mouths to breathe and pass water over their gills, they are exposed to a virus from Norway. 
and this tenacibaculum, which causes mouth rot. It would be like taking your child to the infectious disease ward on her way to school. That is exactly what is happening with these young wild salmon that are trying to get out of Plaquet Sound, Quatsino, Nootka, Discovery Islands, Broughton Archipelago, Queen Charlotte Strait, and Clem too. Well, that's pretty well the whole coast. And it doesn't stop there. The fish carry the viruses and bacteria and sea lice with them as they go up their coast. I have found this Norwegian virus in Mesquina. People are finding it in Alaskan waters. Yeah, it's lower, but it's moving with the fish. It is a, a gift that keeps giving. So we have the power, but boy, it's time to really lean on the throttle right now. So in terms get of these farms out of the water, just in terms of solutions, then yeah, you know, and we we you did mention there was that uh, federal a, a federal mandate was put in for 2025 to get these on land, and clearly, you know, either a a impermeable membrane closed pen in the water with filtration that would be a good first step. And I agree. I mean, these things should be on land. We should probably be using sockeye salmon rather than the Atlantics and feeding them a more vegetarian based diet. Cause of course the other thing that we haven't really talked about is the feed that's going into these Atlantic salmon, which is also pilfering feed fish from other ecosystems and other parts of the world. Um, so maybe, maybe we can start talking uh, about the, you know, what, what we can do or what, what is in front of us that we can move this uh, open, pen system into something which is sustainable and isn't going to be destroying our wild salmon populations. Okay, yes, well, um, so they're businessmen that are getting into this business. Um, there's two huge land-based farms, one in uh, Florida, one in Maine, that are opening up right now that are going to outproduce British Columbia, two farms. Oh, in Norway, they are not giving out licenses for ocean-based farms, they are only giving out licenses for land-based farms or closed farms, closed containment farms. And the Norwegian government isn't just handing them out like candy. They wanna adjudicate on every single idea that the industry has as to how to raise their fish in closed containment. And the reason that Norway is doing this is not to protect wild salmon. They've given up on their wild salmon. They're doing it to protect the industry because the industry is dying of its own diseases. I don't believe in closed containment in the ocean because I've seen the ocean break everything. Of course. So just get it out on land. And then, you know, all the boats that you need, you know, there's a whole bunch of costs that are just removed. And there is a big push right now to do this. There are businessmen that are circling that the fear is that because British Columbia is dragging its feet, because basically the three Norwegian companies that are here, have decided they do not want to go into closed containment in British Columbia. They're working on it in Norway, but I think they're paying the bill with cheap and dirty here. I think they are subsidizing the research and development of closed containment with cheap and dirty farming here. They make millions with every single grow out. So that's what they want to do. And I don't really blame the companies. They're very clear. They're in it to make money. But the government has got to decide right now whether they're going to betray Canadians and just let the wild salmon go down because they know what is going on. They came out with this offer to get the industry out by 2025 and they've reneged on it. So they, they know. 
So it's not a matter of even educating them anymore. It's a matter of saying, yeah, we know you lie all the time during your elections, but not this time. This time it's too important. So get them on the land. And then there's all kinds of benefits and you can make it easy. But like you say, it's still, it's still a nasty concept because they are pillaging other oceans to pollute the ocean here and kill off the fish with the pathogens from the, the farm salmon. Um, but there are companies working on insect feeds, on uh, growing your algae feeds. I mean, if you really want to get into aquaculture and make a bundle, you should be farming seaweeds because then you've got the basis of your food chain and you can build on it from there. Um, but these three companies just don't want to go into closed containment. And that is the whole problem because I have been part of uh, various initiatives to make it easy for them to, to, you know, subsidize it, to ease them into it so that jobs aren't lost. Uh, and build, you know, make Canada be part of the new aquaculture, the one that's going to last. Because the other problem this industry is having is the algae blooms. They have huge die-offs that they claim are due to algae blooms along our west coast. An entire farm shut down recently due to jellyfish. There's just were too many jellyfish. Then there is low oxygen. All of the farms now have huge air pumps pumping in massive amounts of air into every single pen in the ocean because there's not enough oxygen. So they're running themselves over the cliff. They don't even have a long-term view for themselves and getting into the tanks, well, they can control the whole environment. Absolutely. And has there been an economic comparison of uh, the ocean open net ocean pen versus um, a land-based situation and you know and, and obviously part of that equation needs to take into account um, the subsidy which the, the, the British Columbia and Canada is paying in terms of the loss of this resource and loss of the, loss of the opportunity of having these wild salmon. Yes so the government, the federal government did commission such a report and it has recently come out. It hasn't been publicly released, um, but there's also been independent reports done. And yeah, startup costs, is, costs are greater, of course, but the long-term future of it is, is much rosier. Nobody ever factors in the, the lost jobs and really they should, but they never do. But even if you don't factor those in, the fact that you get your aquaculture industry, you get the startup. So, you know, the uh, economic stimulus post-COVID, you, you could put a lot of that right into building these land-based salmon farms. Communities like Campbell River would see huge job creation, jobs where you go home every night and you're not living in some camp, afraid you're going to get COVID-19. Um, and... Uh, and then rebuild the wild fishery. So you get both. I just don't know why we wouldn't have both. Um, so yeah, the economics are in, it is economical, but the companies have to have a long-term commitment to the area, to the place, to the business, and they don't. The salmon farm is just, you know, pull the anchors and away it goes. There is no commitment. There is no infrastructure. The only thing the industry has built that is, uh, is valuable is some of the, the best fish processing plants we've ever seen on this coast. Because the commercial fishery was a bit, was really sloppy with their fish. Right. But these, these guys 
have learned how to take a fish that falls apart in a matter of hours if you don't treat it just right. And uh, they produce something that people will eat. And so imagine if you applied that, for example, to pink salmon. Pink salmon are one of the cleanest proteins left on earth because they feed low on the food chain and they live for such a short time. You could package up that fish and market it that way. So I don't think the processing plants need to go anywhere. Um, you have an opportunity to have both. Yeah, I mean, I suppose part of the um, drive from a, from a policy standpoint could even be a tax incentive where, you know, if, if the companies continue to choose to operate uh, an open pen, there's a certain tax structure that they are um, applied to that situation. And there's a, a different, more preferential tax uh, scenario if you have a land-based uh, system. And that's a pretty simple We've a pretty simple solution to start to move that from a, from a uh, political standpoint. I agree. I agree. But, you know, as I mentioned before, there's something in the background that we can't see with all of this. There's some, I know that Norway and Canada, you know, have signed some economic agreements. Um, there's something we can't see because honestly, it's dirty. Um, it, it, as a scientist who, yeah, go ahead. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense when you look at it and, and the science and all the evidence is screaming one, you know, screaming in one direction, yet the government ignores it and the, and the policymakers ignore it and continue down a path which is clearly destructive uh, and not sustainable and really doesn't have a tremendous amount of benefit for the communities uh, or the province or, or you know, a, a direct benefit in terms of cash in people's pockets. It, it, it seems like there must be something else going on in the background there that we're not uh, privy to. You know, when I first discovered the sea lice problem, I phoned DFO uh, and they said, oh, could you go get me some samples? Go get us some samples. And I was like, yes, I was so excited that they really wanted to look at it. So I did that. I went and got them samples and I shipped them down to Nanaimo on ice. And two days later, there's a DFO officer at my door with pistols who want to charge me with poaching because I didn't have a license to take those fish. Oh my God. So, you know, this is why I say it's dirty. It's, they don't want to hear. Everyone who ever knew anything about aquaculture knew that sea lice were going to be a problem. When I first contacted, I contacted scientists that were studying it in Scotland and Norway, and they were so interesting. The Scottish scientists said, yeah, can't you guys read in Canada? Obviously, this was going to be a problem. And the Norwegian scientists said, uh, my suggestion is you drop this because government isn't going to be happy with you and industry isn't going to be happy with you. And he said, you're going to have good years for lice and bad years for lice, and then you're not going to have your wild fish. Well, you know, they were both right. So this is why I say it's not an honest thing. And it's time. You could say the government didn't know how bad it was going to be. Give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't need to go over what happened but now is a moment where we're at a crossroads 
The fish are running out of time, running out of genetic material, um, and uh, and their allies are, are vanishing. There's no strong commercial fishing voice. There's no strong even sport fishing voice. And uh, so they're left vulnerable. There's nobody standing up for them who who will not be bought out or silenced. And we're losing them because of that. But we don't have to yet. It's not over. Well, that gives us some hope and it gives us uh, a direction to move towards. And, um, you know, like you say, the, the time is now to make a decision uh, and, uh, and put a line in the sand, so to speak, and, and take some action to, <clears throat> so we can avoid uh, falling off the, the, the extinction cliff here with our, with our natural salmon. And, and, and certainly they have, yeah. you know, a number of other challenges in terms of warming water and uh, decreased water flow. And, and so, yeah. you know, whatever we can do to assist them. And certainly this, this is something that is so easy to solve. It just takes that political will for somebody to say, no, this is no longer acceptable and we must do this in a better fashion. Yeah. It's like you say, it's so easy to solve. It's not, it's not that you have to grow an entire forest again or, you know, reverse climate change this year. You just remove these farms. And, you know, I saw that impact this spring looking at the juvenile fish leaving the Broughton and, uh, and we're not even saying don't have the industry. It's easy peasy, but we've got three companies who don't want to change. They like it the way it is. So, yeah, and yeah, it, and it's the year 2020, and we can't be doing things with a 1950s mentality, with that cavalier attitude of you know the resource will uh, extend forever into the future. Um, yeah. The, the, the yeah. time we we need to take these actions. Um, Alex, uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to uh, script a few letters here, and uh, uh, maybe we can, when we conclude this call, um, I'll get a few names from you of, of folks that those letters should be distributed to and I'll, I'll uh, work to get those um, distributed and get some more get some more names on that. I know that you're you are taking donations to a couple of your um, projects that you're working with uh, Pacific Coast Wild Salmon Society and the Rain Coast Research Society. Uh, I'll get links up in yeah. the in the podcast here as well and I would encourage everyone oh, okay. to, uh, Thank you very much. To, to help out in that in that uh, in that uh, regard. And um, certainly welcome uh, having you on the show again. It'll be interesting to discuss that uh, cost comparison uh, document once it's made public. Uh, I think that's a, a good place to start. There's some um, better people to talk to about that. There's some people who've really focused on that. Okay. So I can suggest uh, some, a really good answer for that. Excellent, excellent. I mean, and certainly the, if, if a company is being faced with a loss of its economic opportunity going from whatever they're doing now to zero, that's an unacceptable measure, but if, if we can demonstrate that, yeah, you know, your, your profits may be less than what they are, but now you're a good corporate citizen and doing something which is, has some value instead of just a, you know, a complete deleterious effect. Um, I think that's, that's an argument that people can rally behind. Um, and you know, I, I think actually that the, the on land systems probably require even more hands on deck than the, 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 the net pens do. And so probably actually increase the, the number or the, the employment opportunities. And certainly with the, the other products in terms of you know, the filtration of the waste, which can become a, an organic fertilizer, 
those weight yeah. streams, you know, that, that's a whole other um, opportunity that we're losing right now. And, and you know, it's, it's essentially going into, uh, it's becoming pollution, right? That's right. I, I um, run my sounder around the farms and I can see the mountains of it. You know, I just want to add, it, it might be that the three Norwegians don't want to do this, in which case they need to be just shown the door. It might be that Canadians want to build this new aquaculture industry. Uh, certainly the Numgis First Nation led the way. They built a, they built a pilot land-based farm to show it could work. So, um, I don't, are we married, you know, forever till death to us part to the three Norwegian companies or, or is there some leeway here for Canadian entrepreneurs to take this up and, and take aquaculture into a new level, a really sustainable, a proud industry? Absolutely. Um, I think that that's an open question. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, again, the, the, the world needs food and, and as a, as a sport fisherman and a, and a conservationist, my, my preference would be that the people who are consuming salmon are doing so from a, from a sustainable land-based farm and, and let, let our wild resource recover. And maybe that's a recovery for a generation. Um, and then once that, once those wild stocks are healthy and are feeding, not just the human population, but the other creatures that rely on them, then we can get back out there and, and uh, harvest some of that population, which is at that point, hopefully is a surplus instead of, you know, the, the guts and feathers of, of what was left. This is true. And there's also the enormous wilderness tourism industry, which, you know, needs live salmon because most of that industry is based on salmon predators, whether it's eagles, bears, or the orca. Um, so, yeah, no, that's... Uh, uh, that, that's a, a beautiful concept and it's the way we need to go. And it just, it's just like such a good idea from every angle. I just, if we could just make it happen, I know that the children, the people that come after us will be eternally grateful that we turned this around, eternally grateful. Absolutely. And I think that there, there's a, a possible uh, opportunity there with the First Nations if, and, and again, they as everybody else are looking for economic opportunities. And if they can be assisted into adopting an on-land system and create economic opportunity for their members, um, that becomes a much larger voice and they may perhaps a more orchestrated voice than, than the rest of Canadians in terms of getting in the face of politicians and demanding that those uh, uh, met pens are removed from the ocean. Oh yeah, they're very savvy on this and they're looking into it. They're looking into all aspects. Um, and that's why I say in some ways, assisting the indigenous governments in their effort in this, this is, um, might be the most powerful thing to do because they have the legal ability. They also have the economic drive they also want, really want wild salmon. And to be fair to the federal and provincial governments, they're not negotiating with other countries or provinces. They're very, you know, they're, they're looking at one area. Yes, they have to deal with a lot uh, with all that's around them, but their focus is truer uh, when it comes to salmon. They're, it's not filtered or, or there's not a lot of pull from negotiating with Norway or the US or whatever the federal and provincial governments are facing. Well, certainly if, if anyone on the face of the earth 
has salmon imprinted into their DNA, it would be our coastal First Nations that have, uh, you know, the only reason they were able to thrive and flourish the way they did on the coast is the, their interaction with the salmon. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and when they stand up and they get going on something, oh my word, it's incredibly impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad we uh, were able to sort of distill that out of our conversation and uh, that's some food for thought for moving forward and, and uh, uh, pushing, some, pushing some solutions uh, forward to try to mitigate the situation. Yep. There's, there are solutions here. Excellent. And it Excellent. just takes enough people to tip the balance. Yeah, enough, enough people so. sc screaming uh, the, same, the same tune and, and the, the same demands that uh, if they scream loud enough, they have to be heard. Right. Excellent. Maybe well, it's screaming, maybe it's sure. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's a carrot. <laughs> All of it. What, whatever it takes, absolutely. A, a multifaceted approach to uh, to yeah. make some change happen. But uh, I, you know, it's very clear to me that uh, this change has to happen now. There, there is no more time. Uh, you know, we can't keep pushing this down. Uh, we need to address this today. Yeah, I mean, one problem is people have been hearing that salmon are going down for so long that they've become numb to it, but they don't realize. Maybe, well, some of us do. But I think for many, they don't realize that we're near the bottom. And they also don't realize how many things this breaks if they're gone. Some people will say to me, oh, I don't eat salmon. And so that is their saying, I'm not responsible for any of this. But, oh, yes, you are, because they're part of our ecosystem that we live in and keeps us alive. So um, if, we, if we look at the whole, you know, everything around us, yeah, they are, they are critical. They are critical and huge and powerful and resilient. And we love them. So why can't we have them if we just love them? Why do we have to need them? But we do need them and we also love them. Yeah, and they, they, are, a, they are a magical species. I mean, their, their struggles and their, their, their selflessness in terms of coming back to spawn and giving their yeah. lives essentially for the, the betterment of everything around them, right? So uh, they're, they're very, very unique species in, 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 the, in the animal kingdom. So what I'm saying, they, they, they're so successful, they can feed themselves and a hundred other species and build the soil and our communities and um, the culture of First Nations. So they are remarkable. They are remarkable. They deserve every effort we can give them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on that, uh, Alex, let's leave that for today. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. And um, like I yeah, said, I'll be, I'll be posting some of the links up. Um, and I definitely uh, like to keep in contact with you here. And as uh, issues come up, um, let's look to jump back on another call and uh, push the voice of reason okay. out into the, the madness. Okay, yeah, that's a good plan. All right. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, ma'am. You have care. a great day and we will chat in the future. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye.